You are listening to a Raw Collective podcast. Alrighty, this episode is brought to you by Bliss Probiotics and Mitchell's Nutrition, two really awesome companies making really cool products that I use, and I'm stoked they have jumped on board to support the podcast. First up, let's chat about Bliss Probiotics. If you want to support your natural immunity, then this is a really cool way to do it. These guys make a lozenge for your mouth that is probiotic, and it supports your microbiome in your mouth and throat, which is it's pretty unique in the microbiome kind of sphere. These guys are leading the charge globally in this sort of thing. It's all based on science. The products are made in Dunedin, and uh, it's a really good way to support your immunity. So if you're interested to learn more, check out the show notes. Secondly, you may have noticed that I'm quite into my bone broth protein powder from Mitchell's. I've posted about it numerous times on Instagram. I love it a lot. And uh, I'm really glad that these guys have jumped on board to support the podcast. I really like promoting them. They are a really cool company based in Tauranga. And they make an amazing bone broth protein powder. It's um, a very high quality protein powder. Tastes absolutely delicious. It's certainly worth checking out. So if you're interested, hit the show notes for more information about Mitchell's. Okay, great podcast today with my friend, Dr. Dan Plews. He is uh, he's one of New Zealand's top sports scientists. He's had a lot to do with the, some of the New Zealand Olympic athletes, the America's Cup athletes. He trains some of the world's best triathletes. He shares a bit of insight into that sort of stuff, uh, along with HRV, or heart rate variability, which is one of his main areas of expertise, and how he uses that for training his athletes, what are the implications of this, and what HRV might mean for everyone else who's, who's not an athlete and how to track it and all sorts of different things. We talk a bit about sauna, we talk about ice baths, we talk about supplements, a few other health practices, and we also talk about an animal-based diet, which is something that him and I have both experimented with. It's a, a very wide-ranging podcast covering a few different topics, and it's all very interesting. So, Enjoy. Hey, Dr. Dan Plews, thanks for agreeing to sit down and have a chat. It's good to be here. Mm, yeah. I feel like we've been, well, we have been meaning to have this chat for ages. 13 weeks ago, 14 weeks ago. Mm. We're here now. Yeah, man. Got the nice sea view. <laughs> I know. Yeah, no, thanks for inviting me around. We've just, um, to set the scene, we've just done a workout at your place and had a sauna and an ice bath. Yeah, I'm you've, still cold. You've just had to put a hoodie on because you're cold. Yeah. But that's, you know, that can happen when you're uh, in pursuit of elite elite health. (laughs) Hey, so I want to start off by asking you what's the weirdest thing you've ever done for your health or performance? Weirdest thing? You're quite weird, so I'm sure you've done quite a lot of weird things. Where to begin with that? One of the strangest is eating raw liver. I think that's up there. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That would be up there, I think. And so might be eating raw liver. Well, you persuaded me to do the animal-based diet. <laughs> we were having a conversation earlier who was who persuaded who to do the animal-based diet. But um, So I was trying the animal-based diet, basically, and one of the parts of that is eating raw liver. And I don't think there's any real good reason for it to be raw. I mean, my understanding is that there are benefits of eating it raw and there are benefits of not eating it raw because certain nutrients come out raw, certain nutrients come out when it's cooked. 
I'm pleased that I did it because now I can eat raw liver quite easily. And there is, mm. it's full of nutrients, right? There's so much in there, K2, riboflavin, carnitine, carnitine, like so much great stuff, iron, copper. Man, it's, it's, it is a superfood. It's one of the most nutrient-dense foods there is on the planet, which is why it's so good. And when you're doing the animal-based diet, because you're cutting out a lot of vegetables and a lot of those micronutrients that are associated with that, you really need to up your organ meats to kind of make up for it. So I reckon that's the weirdest thing. Yeah, that's quite weird. It's pretty weird when I tell people that, that I eat raw liver. Yeah. Let's, um, I mean, I, I wanted to talk about this later in the podcast, but let's talk about it now. So you and I both did um, an animal-based diet. Why did you want to do it? And how did you do this animal-based diet? And what is an animal-based diet? Well, I mean, it's just my arm's very rubbery and you were like, do you want to do an animal-based diet? And I was like... Yeah, why not? <laughs> I've always been a bit of a prolific experimenter anyway. I've always I've always been what I like to think of as an early adopter to try new things and see what works, see what doesn't work. I mean, I was very early into like, you know, lower carb diets and stuff. So I've always wanted to experiment and I was just very interested in it really to see what difference it would make and if it felt good in it. You know, following certain people on like social media and people who are quite reputable as well, who, you know, doctors and whatnot, who really talk of the benefits of it. So, yeah, I just wanted to try it and see how I went. And we t- did take some body composition measurements before. We did the DEXA scans, took some bloods just to kind of see what happened. And, but we did find that. Body composition didn't really change at all. It was almost identical. But mm. I have to say, I did feel very good on it. I felt good. When I was doing it full on, I felt really good. But I think um, some of the negative parts I found was because I exercised a lot, I was finding it difficult to get all the food that I wanted. And I was I was finding myself a little bit hungry, especially because I'm... Because it was part of it, you can't have nuts and seeds, right? And so that, yeah, what, what, what foods can you have? Yeah, that's a good point. I should start with that. You can have, it's basically fruit, honey, dairy, and meat, pretty much. is kind of all, all you can take. We were... And eggs. Yeah, and eggs, yeah. Which yeah. Is, da- is that dairy? Is that classified no. as dairy? Unless they come from a cow. I don't think <laughs> eggs come from a cow. <laughs> Not, definitely don't. Yeah, so yeah, eggs, milk, yogurt. There was like you could have like um, pumpkin would be classified as oh, okay. Oh yeah, there were some sort of root beers. Yeah, some like pumpkin, cucumber, courgettes. That's included, but like certainly not anything that was like um, leafy. So kale or what's the idea around that? Like cutting out the leafy greens. The idea is that the some of the leafy greens have defense chemicals in them, so things like oxalates, lectins, um, which can cause inflammation in the gut, and the inflammation in the gut can then lead to more inflammation, like systemic inflammation around the whole body, which um, you know, which affects digestion and affects everything else. So um, the idea is that you remove those out and you, you can feel a lot better. And there is lots of case studies of people who have tried the animal-based diet and cured many kind of diseases of inflammation right and problems like that so yeah they say like similar with like a carnivore diet because mm. i think a carnivore diet is basically an animal-based diet but it's more restrictive it's just meat so mm. you don't have the dairy and fruit and stuff like that yeah that's meant to be a really good way to cure autoimmune well some autoimmune and inflama- yeah. inflammatory 
diseases. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This is where the difference between carnivore versus animal-based. Like a carnivore-based diet is pretty much eggs, meat, salt water. That's yeah. pretty much it. Mm. And there's nothing else you can have, which I think I think is very restrictive. And I found the animal base quite restrictive as well. I found that I was having a lot of fruit and I typically don't really eat that much fruit. And I think we all know that one of the biggest things behind living a healthy lifestyle is like low, stable blood sugar, blood glucose. And, you know, fruits are sugar, right? And I felt like I was having too much of that in my diet to try and make up for other things because I wasn't, because I was exercising a lot. I needed the calories. So I couldn't have nuts and seeds, which I actually depend on quite a lot as a filler, like peanut butter and whatnot. So um, that was one of the main downsides of it, really. Mm. Did you miss eating vegetables? Mm, I certainly didn't miss any of the leafy vegetables. Right. Yeah. I mean, not really. I mean, I think I missed like carrot and some of those ones. But um, I, I, I mean, I've never really been a big fan of salad spinachy, yeah. you know, kale. And I just, I really missed broccoli. I really missed broccoli. And yeah, kale's a funny one, eh? Like I used to always have green smoothies and I could tell if I'd put too much kale or spinach in my smoothie. It would like Fasting up, like a wizard? No, it would ups, upset my tummy. Like <laughs> yeah. I would actually get a bit of a sore tummy. And I just thought, oh yeah, it's still like good for me and all that sort of stuff. But I think it was too much. I think you yeah. can have too much of it. I think it can but negatively is, affect you. This is what I have come to discover and or not, my way of thinking now is that any kind of stressor, like a plant defense chemicals, it, it is a stress on the body. So does sauna, so does ice bath, so does exercise. So there's so many things that are small stresses and I think small stresses are great, but long-term acute chronic stresses are not great for our health, which is why I think now that too much leafy greens, too much vegetables, too many, too much broccoli is not good for your health. And I, and I've, I think even now I've reduced what I used to have. It's just too much stress, right? And like that, too much stress causes too much inflammation, and then too much inflammation. But in little bits, it's good because you recover from it and you you benefit from it. But um, I think long term, like when people are like thinking that you know, the more the better and you're doing your green smoothies and then you're having like your salads for lunch and then that can lead to overall more inflammation. So really? Yeah. How would you know? Like how do you think you'd know if that was what was causing inflammation in your body? The best way you can always solve these problems is through elimination, right? Is mm. I mean you can take blood markers, right? You can take blood markers of inflammations like C reactive proteins and and other things that IL-6, all those sorts of blood markers that are associated with inflammation, you can measure those things. But I think most people kind of feel it. You know, many people will have, often have some kind of skin reaction as well. Like people, I know that people who have like bad eczema, for example, goes away with reductions in plants, eating plants. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so. so we did it for... Eight weeks. Eight weeks. And I think you were probably a little bit more strict than I was well, towards the end of it. <laughs> uh, I, I remember specifically, you were like, um, so I've eaten a croissant. <laughs> and 
I had um, I had some birthday cake. Yeah, well, it was. It's, I mean, that's the thing. Like a diet like that is just so hugely restrictive. It's just mm. I, I don't think it's sustainable for most people. Anyway, it certainly wasn't sustainable for me. I did find that, like you, I still have continued to eat raw liver. Mm. Like that's my multivitamin. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, in a way, it's it's so nutrient dense that like I, I'll have that over eating vegetables, yeah. even though I do eat vegetables as well because I do really enjoy vegetables. And mm. I do think they have a benefit. Are you still with the leafy the leafy? No, I, I actually have very few leafy yeah. I think I'm greens. the same. I mean, I, I love broccoli, so I, I do eat a lot of broccoli. Um, but I have a little bit of spinach here and there, but that's probably it. Someone said to me the other day that broccoli is not a natural vegetable. It's a, it's I've, a man-made. I've heard that too. It's... um. Like it's made from radishes and something else. It's like manufactured by, I mean, I don't know if that's true. I'll have to look it up, but <laughs> interesting, eh? <laughs> but you and me, just just on the liver, I mean, we both found the exact same thing. And it, it's a really strange feeling is that when you have it, you get an immediate boost. You feel good after it. Mm. You eat it and you feel better. It's, it's a strange thing. You actually, it's hard to explain, but mm. you, it's, you actually have a, a good feeling in you. I mean, people are like, why do you eat that? Because of the way it makes you feel. If you if you try it, it does do something. It makes you feel really good after it. So yeah. it's a boost. For me, it, it does. It feels like a little boost. Like a couple of times I've I've had it and I, within sort of half an hour to an hour, I feel like I've, it's not like, I, I want to say like a coffee, but it's a different sort of energy than a coffee, but it's like it gives, it's given me a boost in energy, mm. which is very. Anyway, but yeah, it's good. I mean, it's definitely not my area of expertise and there's, People who know way more about less sort of stuff than me, but um, it was interesting. But it was it was a good thing to do, and 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 the great things about that doing stuff like that is that you learn along the way. You take some things that you like, you remove some things that you don't don't mm. like. You know, and, and now I think you and me have kind of kept all the good bits and removed all the bits that didn't, didn't really work. You know, I think now even I have a, I have a probably I eat a little bit more fruit than I used to. I would say. And also now I have the organ meats and I still have organ meat capsules pretty much every day. So that's like got brain, liver, bone marrow, bone, and testicle. Testicle? Yeah, the testicle's in, in there as well. Yeah, but I wouldn't, I'm not going to be eating that um, raw. <laughs> no. No. Oh, yeah, I don't know about that. Did you eat any? So, I mean, when you're doing the animal-based diet, the idea is to have a whole lot of different organ meats mm. um, and eating from from nose to tail. So, I mean, I only really had liver and bone marrow. Yeah. Did you have any other organs? Heart. You had heart. Oh, as well. and heart yeah. as well. Yeah. 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 yeah um, so I had bone marrow, which is delicious. Like yeah. Bone marrow is amazing. I love and, bone marrow. And super high in K2, which is really important for your like blood vessels and mm. your, that, that kind of development. And heart, and I, and I had some kidney. Oh. Kidney's, yeah, kidney's not for me. No, I'm not big on kidney. It tastes like piss, really, doesn't it? <laughs> what, can I say piss on here? Yeah, you can. <laughs> oh, good. You can say whatever you like. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's just not good. Nah, and I and I like boiled it a bit, and it was oh, that sounds worse. Yeah, it was awful. The um, heart's great. Heart just kind of tastes a little bit like steak. I got my kids eating heart. I actually got Audie, my our little girl, a uh, year and a half old. She was eating some raw liver with me yesterday. Yeah, nice. I nice. Know, so that was cool. Yeah, like my my kids will eat will eat heart. They just just like normal steak, right? Yeah. And like yeah, so and I still have heart to this day. Mm. Massively great source of coenzyme Q ten as well. Yeah, right. Which is um, you know, for immunity and whatnot, really important. Like 
and it's not in any of the meats really. Mm. So that's mm. good. It's also all these like organ meats and alternative cuts of meat are so cheap. Yes, it's such a like good way to eat. Yeah, you can buy an ox heart, and an ox heart would give you oh, give you ten meals. Yeah, yeah right. Ten meals. Wow. It's like 40, 50 bucks. Mm. It's the size of your head. Yeah. And you've got a pretty big head. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a giant head. <laughs> well, I mean, a, a, um, a cow's liver. Yes. That is big. Yeah. Like a backpack. <laughs> like, <laughs> like a backpack. That's how I described it to you. Right? It yeah. is. Yeah. I, I got a fresh um, cow's liver from someone down the road from me because I live somewhere that has cows near me. And, um, you asked me how big this liver was, and I could only describe it as being as big as a backpack. <laughs> but it was. But it then was. I had I experienced the same thing. So we got a a home kill, um, <clears throat> and Kate, my wife, she brought it back, and I'm like, "What is this?" It was massive, absolutely massive. Yeah, huge. Yeah. yeah so it's a that size of backpack. That's a big backpack. <laughs> that's a big. That's a big yeah. backpack. I'm pointing. I'm pointing to a backpack. Yeah. For those listening, he's pointing to a giant backpack. Yeah. Yeah, so the measures that we did, the blood tests we did, we did the yeah, full DEXA scans, which does your body composition. We didn't really notice any difference, did we? No, it was identical. Well, I guess, I mean, we're only doing, it was two months. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you would see anything. We didn't, we didn't do any post-blood tests, though. No, but remember, like, our blood tests were really good, though. I mean, at the start and then, yeah, I, I think we both lost a bit of enthusiasm when our debts were identical, right? Mm. It was like, oh, I didn't bother going to get a blood test. I mean, but we took like faceted insulin, vitamin D, uh, C-reactive proteins, iron, and they were all... They were all pretty good. They were all pretty good. Blood triglycerides, yeah. which is really low. Yeah. Give it a try. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Well, now let's move into... That wasn't your area of expertise, so let's move into the area of your expertise. I want to talk about your professional coaching background yeah yeah actually no let's talk about your personal athletic background first okay yeah all right yeah so i mean lifelong endurance athlete i mean my background's in triathlon i'm specifically more recently the long distance triathlon but i've been doing triathlon since i was nine really nine years old competed british team the shorter distance for them moved to the longer distance that's kind of me as a as an athlete, but I've kind of like been involved in endurance sports as a profession for a very long time as well. I have a PhD in exercise physiology, like so. I've worked with um, rowing New Zealand, so I was with rowing New Zealand for eight years. Still work with women's kayak with that team. Head of performance for Emirates Team New Zealand, and now I coach professional Ironman triathletes. Alrighty, as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, Bliss Probiotics is one of our sponsors for this episode, so I thought I'd just let you know a little bit more about what they do, who they are, and and why I think they're so good. So Bliss Probiotics, they help to support your immune system. They're unlike most probiotics that target the gut. Bliss Probiotics specifically target the mouth and the throat, which is, you know, that's essentially, it's the gateway to your body. So they stop the bad bacteria up in the mouth and throat before it gets a chance to get inside you and start making you sick because there are so many things that make you sick these days. There's so many illnesses, there's so many viruses, it's been a long winter. And so I'm always interested to find different ways in which I can help keep myself and my family well. And Bliss Probiotics is one of the things that we do. We take lozenges every day as a preventative measure to support our immunity, keep ourselves healthy. Because at the end of the day, who wants to be sick? I know I don't want to be sick and I don't want a sick family. I don't want sick kids. We just take, uh, take one lozenge a day 
They taste delicious. My son loves them. He's always asking for his lozenge in the morning. So take Bliss Probiotics to increase your good bacteria in your mouth and your throat, maintain good health, and protect your family against chills and colds. I also love that they're backed by science and made locally in Dunedin. So if you're interested to learn more, check out the show notes for a direct link to their website and you can have a look for yourself and learn more and see how you can get yourself some if you're interested. And now, back to the chat. We're sitting in your office and there's this bowl that you have. It says Ironman World Championship first place male. Age group. Age group. <laughs> yeah. But still, I mean, that's very cool. And this bowl is a... Can you explain the bowl? Because I'm not supposed to put stuff in this bowl. Yeah, it's called a, y- a Yukiki bowl. It's given to people when they do Hawaii, Kona, mm. the Ironman World Championships, when you get the top, I think it's the top five. And um, yeah, it's supposed to possess your mana, so your power. So Art put something in the bowl and I said, take it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know. I mean, I thought bowls were putting things in. <laughs> so basically, it's a pointless piece of um, ornament there, but yeah. so That's cool. Okay, but I just wanted to point out that you're actually very good. Yeah, so I, I hold the course record for the fastest amateur at Kona, Hawaii. Cool. Mm, eight hours, 24. Oh, that sounds fast. Actually, that sounds really long. I couldn't imagine exercising for that long. No. And that sounds Do you know what, though? When, when painful. You, yeah, but you, you've done coast to coast, though. Yeah, I have done coast to coast. Yeah. Isn't that that's about the same? Well, yeah, but it's not as full on as doing an Ironman. I mm. did it over two days. Oh, yeah, that's cheating. Yeah, I cheated. Yeah, yeah doing it over two days is not the same. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, those who don't know, Ironman's 3.8K of swimming, 180K of cycling, and then a marathon. What exactly were you doing for, like, Emirates Team New Zealand and for our rowing kayaking teams and stuff? Well, rowing and kayaking, very similar roles. It's yeah. like performance physiologist. So working with the coaches to look at data from training to make decisions to, you know, whether they should do more training, whether they should do less training, how they can tweak the program to be individualized for them based on their own individual data. So that means it's like testing in the lab, testing on the water, seeing responses to training, seeing what their own internal physiology is to get the best training dose or the best type of training. So like you might have someone who's more of like um, a diesel engine would might require different training to someone who's more of a petrol engine, so to speak. So someone who's more speedy versus someone who's more kind of more endurance focused. And they're the sorts of things that I did with them, yeah. But with Emirates Team New Zealand, it was more, um, I was a head of physical performance. So though there was a bit of performance physiology associated with that, I was more writing the training. Mm. And getting the grinders fit specifically for what they had to do on the on the water, but it's been a, a kind of a funny role. You know, I started off as very much a performance physiologist working with coaches, and now I kind of do both. I'm the coach and the physiologist, right? And I think that's a in some ways it's a bit easier because I don't have to talk to the coach. I just look at the data. My training that I give my triathletes, my Ironman triathletes, I look at the data, I test them look at the physiology, and then I write the training. Mm. Whereas before, it's like you look at the data, you test them, you get the physiology, and then you give suggestions to the coach. You know, So now I just remove the coach altogether and kind of do it yourself. Cut out the middleman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, But I still do that with kayak, and it's, and it's great. because. But you have to have a very good coach who understands it a lot. And I feel like with rowing, it's sometimes quite hard to do because it was old school. Sometimes the coach is didn't understand and it was always very difficult whereas at kayak the coach the head coach is amazing and he's very very 
knowledgeable and understands the science and he's very open to it. And I mean, that's why there's such a successful program as well, because he's such a good coach. So yeah, it depends how it works. But then when you're doing it yourself, it's even better, right? Because you just do it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And so that's kind of how you work with your Ironman triathletes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most noticeable recently was Chelsea Sodaro. Sodaro. Chelsea right. Sodaro. So yeah. this is your um, your athlete that you train. Can you tell us about her? Yeah. So Chelsea, she's recently won the Ironman World Championships about twenty days ago. Twenty yeah. days ago, and yeah. that was that was Kona. So yeah. That's like that's like the pinnacle of Ironman triathlete. I mean, depends who you ask. I mean. In my opinion, winning Kona is bigger than winning the Olympics in our sport. Wow. It's like a grand slam in tennis versus winning the Olympics. You know, it's kind of, I think it's the be all and end all. It's the biggest thing in our sport, like Tour, cool. de, Tour de France versus the Olympics. So a cyclist would rather win the Tour de France than win the Olympics, yeah, for sure. example. So so it's the biggest thing that we have in our, in our sport, really. Yeah, and she, she was a rookie, so first time there, and she won, which is very unheard of doesn't happen very often but it happened a lot this year yeah and she was also had a 18 month old so gave birth 18 months ago that's amazing and because you you trained her all through pregnancy as well didn't you yeah so i took her on six weeks pregnant how how was her training through pregnancy like did you how hard was she training through the different periods of her pregnancy i mean i would never never like full-on training, super hard, you know. I think in the uh, early days we were doing obviously a lot more and we just got bigger and bigger. We had to do less and less. But what I quickly discovered is that when it comes to females and training them for pregnancy, it's, you just got to look at the individual mm. and the way the individual responses. And even with my own kids, right, like I see my wife gave birth to like, their pregnancy with our first versus our second, they're like totally different, massively different. So you, you can't really look at literature or do any reading and kind of think, oh, well, in this trimester I do this sort of training and in the second trimester I'll do this sort of training. You, yeah, you just got to like look at the individual and talk to them. And we were monitoring HRV, heart rate variability, which I know we're gonna, we'll are gonna, probably talk about, looking at how she was coping and morning sickness and just changing training on the fly. And that's how, how we rolled with it really. And then, you know, postpartum, very, very gradual build back up. I mean, she was working with a pelvis specialist, you know, to kind of get everything because that was one of the main problems was like running again. Yeah. It was hard. Yep. Um, so, we, you know, you got to lean on professionals who know much more about that area than, than me. And yeah, and it was just a team effort. So it's so cool. I mean, Chelsea had this like f- kind of forced stopping in her training, right? Mm. Through some of the pregnancy and the birth and postpartum. Do you think there's any like, because I know some athletes do really well when they're coming off a big break. Yeah. Do you think that could have played any part in it at all? Or is that not really the case for this sort of sport? I don't think so. I mean, when she came back, she was not very good. Right. Like, you know, it, it was, she wasn't like it was back and then the rest. Because usually it's like when you see that sort of thing, they take a rest and then boom, it's really quick. Mm. Right? They come back really fast. And, that, and I, th- that- I think it's more for like sports that are... Very short, like yeah. um, fast sprints, doing high yeah. jumps, stuff like that. And it took us a long, I mean, it was 18 months since she gave birth and there's been some massive ups and downs. Right. And there's been, there was a lot of downs as well. Mm. Like there's two phases to an athlete's life. There's the train to train phase and there's the train to compete phase. The train to train phase is when you're basically training to train. 
So you have to be fit enough and be able to, so you can actually cope with the level of training that is required to be good at that event. Mm. So for an Ironman, that is a lot of training. If you want to be good at Ironman, you're going to have to at least be able to cope with 25 hours of quality training a week. And if you can't do that, you're not going to be able to compete because you can't do the training. So we spent a lot of time training her for that first period, trying to get into into the train-to-train phase. And it wasn't really until maybe eight weeks to go before Kona that she actually started finally getting all the sessions done without complaint and not missing some because we'd have to have to skip sessions, take more rest. Um, That's amazing. That's mm. incredible that she won. Yeah, but, I mean, once it clicks, it clicks, right? right. And then she's not a nobody. She has um, a very strong running background. So she was national 10K champion for in the States. So... Mm. And in Kona, that's always very beneficial because it's the run's pretty important. Yeah, and she obviously had a good coach. Well, I, I didn't want to say that, but yeah. <laughs> What's um? I mean, you've obviously been involved in triathlon and endurance type sports for over thirty years. There's probably been so many huge developments in sports science from a physiological and nutritional point of view. What do you think are some of the main advancements? in the field and how has that changed the training now compared to what it was back then? Mm, the main difference is wearables now. like Because now with the wearable technology, we have streams of data that's continuous. You know, you could put on a glucose meter or you can put on a something that looks at the oxygen saturation in the muscle. You can look at that and it can be syncing to your watch in real time. I think now the future is in individualization of training based on streams of data and using like even neural networks and machine learning to kind of understand what's affecting what. So, you know, for for you and me, right, I know that you've measured HRV in the past. I measure HRV. There's a lot of similarities between what affects someone's HRV and what doesn't, but you might respond really well from low-intensity training. I might respond really well from high-intensity training, and I think that's where things are moving now is that we're getting them more individual rather than looking at studies and doing like n of 20 data it's n of one but big data sets and that's because of the wearable technology and you can use it so much more so with that everything's so much tighter specifically training intensity prescription so like making sure that things are if you say you want this to be at your aerobic threshold or your anaerobic threshold it is very, very specific and it's not guesswork anymore. It's like, this is your anaerobic threshold. It's not like running around anaerobic threshold and kind of feel what it is. You know, people get that wrong. So I think that's where the biggest differences have come. Just the training is a lot more specific and detailed towards the individual. So then with someone like Chelsea, what data were you looking at? What were you tracking? Of We tracked a lot of things. So, I mean, we always tracked power, pace, heart rate in every single session. And then we did HRV as well. And then also regular lab testing. So like she'll go to the lab, we'd monitor lactate, VO2, and that would base a lot of the training. So I always take this backwards, like kind of a bit of a backwards approach where you go to the lab, do a lot of testing, look at where the performance gap is, and then build the training around closing the gap. So for example, like really simply is like, okay, we have an idea of what, what she needs to be able to do to win the event at Kona. So we might go to the lab and say, okay, you need to have a fat oxidation of this, a threshold of this, a VO2 max of this, a running economy of this. And then you kind of look at where the gap is and then that's where you thread the program to close the gap. So if, if we go, oh, look at your VO2 max is way too low for this stage in the game. 
then you move the training program towards moving the needle of that particular instance at that particular point in time. Mm. So yeah, that's the approach that we took. Yeah, that's pretty cool because there's so many different aspects, so many different uh, markers that you're trying to achieve and hit, right? Yeah, and there's terms of success are different across all sports, right? So you have to kind of know your sport. Like when I was working with rowing, like you know, anaerobic or glycolytic activity, so your ability to produce like metabolic work anaerobically is important. Triathlon, Ironman, not important at all. Really, very, very, almost zero for, in fact, it is zero for the event itself. That's not to say that we don't want that to be high at times during the training period. That's what I really like about training. You want things to be up at certain times because you want to move the program in a certain way. So if you wanted to develop someone's threshold, for example, like the anaerobic threshold, so it's about what you can hold for an hour-ish, you want to start that person with a high VO2 max and a high lactate accumulation or anaerobic capacity because that gives you more room to, to then build the threshold. So it's like, okay, I look at the data, so you know, Chelsea's anaerobic threshold is too low. If I want to move that, I need to also shift her VO2 max and her lactate accumulation or anaerobic capacity first because if I don't move that first, I'm not going to be able to shift the threshold. And so you train differently to achieve those Exactly. Right. So you might so you might foresee that the main goal is to move the threshold, mm. but you might be moving the um, VO2. V- VO2 first because you know that's going to have better implications to moving the, the threshold. Yeah, right. Yeah. One thing you mentioned uh, before is heart rate variability or HRV. I mean, that's a, a huge area of your expertise. Can you explain what it is? Yeah, so... Heart rate variability, many people might have heard of the autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system is, auto is Latin for self, so it's something that we have no control over. So when you go into a room, your pupils might dilate, that's related to your autonomic nervous system just doing it automatically, right? So there's two parts of your autonomic nervous system. There's three, but the main ones that people talk about is two, sympathetic and the parasympathetic. So the sympathetic side is more fight or flight stress. So if you're quite nervous, if you're exercising, generally you're more sympathetic. And then if you're um, more rested, like rest and digest, you're more parasympathetic. So these are the two sides that people need to be aware of. But the way it works is it's called the sympathovagal balance. So it's not like one's on, one's off. It's just that one sways more in the direction than the other. So when you're exercising, you'll be predominantly sympathetic, less parasympathetic. And when you're more rested, you're more parasympathetic and less sympathetic. That's of interest to us because then we can kind of know when we're more stressed and when we're more relaxed. And of course, you, like we talked about before, you don't want continuous stresses. Like Just like I talked about with the plants and the animal, the defense chemicals in the plants, you don't want to have continuous stress so if you're permanently sympathetic that's not going to be a good thing for your overall health and heart rate variability it's a basically it's a measure of whether you're primarily parasympathetic or you're sympathetic so it looks at the gap between heartbeats and then it looks at how much that gap is varying between heartbeats and the more that gap is varying so the more variation between beats, so there's a lot of change between each heartbeat, the more parasympathetic you are, and the less, so the more it's like a drum, the more it's continuous, 
the more sympathetic you are. And the reason being is because the parasympathetic system is much quicker to react than the sympathetic system. So you get more changes between the heartbeats. And so you talk about the stress from when you're sympathetic, it's, there's more stress being produced. And so then what about when you're recovering? Is that also reflected in, in being an elevated stress? You're more in that sympathetic response if you are still recovering from training. Yeah, so when you finish exercise, depending on how hard it is, like the more intense the exercise, generally the more sympathetic output you would have. So like to the aerobic threshold, heart rate will generally increase from a withdrawal of parasympathetic activity. So you'll withdraw parasympathetic activity and heart rate will go up. But pretty much after that aerobic threshold, which isn't much, which is around 75% of your max heart rate, so it's not too high, after that point, you increase heart rate through an increase in sympathetic activity. So after exercise, if you've been doing a lot of high-intensity exercise and you produce a lot of what's like sympathetic mobilization, so with with high sympathetic drive, you have a lot of releases of things like catecholamines, noradrenaline, which is then in, in the endocrine system and in your physiology, takes a lot longer to recover from. So you will be predominantly more sympathetic for prolonged periods after exercise, particularly high-intensity exercise. But low-intensity exercise, you generally recover from much more quickly. Mm. But I th- also think people feel that a bit, right? You know, if you do really high-intensity exercise, you know you feel a bit almost jittery. I mean, mm. obviously, a bit of that will be the lactate and whatnot, but a lot of it is the sympathetic mobilization, some of those catecholamines that are associated with that. How do you then use that for your athletes? Like, are you monitoring their HIV, making sure that they're not spending too long you know, in a sympathetic drive or they're just not like monitor their recovery? How do you look at it? So we measure HRV every morning. HRV is changing or like your autonomic nervous system is changing all throughout the day. So you need to have a time. If you're going to measure it, you need to have a time when you're going to do it. That's quite regimented, very controlled. So the first thing in the morning is the best time you can do it because you just woke up, you know, you're not going to have something that's going to interrupt you because if you walk downstairs, and you realize you've got no beans for your coffee machine, you're going to get fired up. Well, I would. Well, even if you like look at your phone. Yeah, I mean, anything like that, yeah. yeah. So you yeah. want to do it before you have any stimulus, outside stimulus. And um, and then what what I look at is when they're training, and it's an endurance-based training, I expect I look at HRV trends over time, and I, I expect to see different trends in HRV within the context of the training they're doing. So if, for example, you're doing an Ironman training block, predominantly most of that is endurance-based training. Most of it's low intensity. I expect to see trends of increasing HIV over time. But if I was to, say, give them a real high-intensity block for like three or four days, it's a lot of high-intensity, I would expect to see decreases over time. But the thing is I can't... So, and just to, so a decrease in HIV is sort of reflective of too much sympathetic. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which is fine, but you can't do that for a prolonged period. So... If I'm doing like a three-week block, for example, and I'm seeing decreases over time and they're not really supposed to be doing that, they're supposed to be seeing increases over time because it's more of an endurance block, then I know I've got a problem with my training. Something's not going right. So I'd either look at is the training they're doing at the correct intensity? Is the low intensity low enough? Are they sleeping right? What's their food like? Have they got some other stresses going on in their life? And yeah, because often... We find that people adapt, are adapting to training much, much 
more effectively when HRV is increasing over time. It's like a positive adaptation, whereas it's more of a negative adaptation when it's decreasing over time and they don't really get the same response. So you mean making sure that people aren't overtraining? Yeah, well, it's not just overtraining. It's actually the adaptation. So if you imagine like I could give you the same training stimulus twice, one week I let you just focus on your training, right? And, and it's a very easy week. It's a good week. The next week, I stress you out and I make you move house. I give you some exams, make the kids not sleep, make you not sleep. One, you know, sounds sounds like a normal week. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, what's different? Yeah. The first week, you would adapt much better to that training than the second week because of all the other stresses are blunting the response. And that's what you can see in the HRV. Okay. So then, do you then try and factor all of those? outside of training influences to HIV into things and like, tr- like it's you know. more it's, it's more asking the right questions when you're seeing the the wrong response you know right, trying okay. to get to the bottom of why why that is really mm. than trying to control everything because you just can't you right? can't but I guess now that you have the data to show it and to show that like these outside influences are negatively impacting mm. training you know like the stress of a job or a moving house mm. or things like that then I guess you could try and get your athletes to avoid these stressful things because you do know that it will negatively impact yeah, exactly. your training. Exactly. And that's where I think if you are collecting all that data, and like we talked about the individualization of data before, you can learn a lot if you pull all the data together and you're looking at, I've actually just done some research where we've looked at like HRV and carbohydrate intake and round exercise and whether people are feeling good and feeling bad. You know, you can pull that data together and do kind of big data crunching and understand what's influencing what but you can do it on an individual level as well how do you track hiv so there's lots of ways aura ring you're wearing one right now one right now looks nice like there's so much good wearable technology now that can do it easily for you when i first started my phd you had to wake up in the morning put a heart rate strap on measure five minutes on your phone upload the data whereas now you can there's wearable devices like aura ring will do it for you Whoop is another one that will do it for you. I had a Whoop strap. Yeah. And about a month ago, my daughter flushed it down the toilet. <laughs> what does that say? It was sad. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of good. I think I, I was tracking my HIV and my sleep and, and everything. And it was almost like a little bit annoying mm. because I was seeing some stuff that it annoyed me. Yeah. You know, the kids are not sleeping through the night. So that impact impacted my sleep and that impacted my HIV. And I was like, oh, this is really annoying. And then I just thought, you know what? I think I just need to chill out from looking at my data and just mm. flush my whip down the toilet. <laughs> well, well, Audie, Audie thought that was the case. <laughs> she did a fall. Sorry, this is stressing you out too much, yeah. Daddy. I'm going to throw this down the toilet. Do you ever find that that's a thing? Sometimes you might see your sleep being average and then you're like, oh, I had, I had bad sleep. And then it sort of makes you think that you're more tired than maybe you would have been. If yeah, you, but I, also, you find, I also find the opposite. More often than the way that you just ah, described. So you see you're like a high HRV in the morning and you're like, yeah, it's telling you you're primed to exercise. And even though you might feel a bit tired, you're like, yeah, oh, well, yeah. I can, I often, often I can go ha- for it. Yeah, often I'll have a bad sleep and my HRV is good, you know, mm. or I'm fine. And I think, oh, that was a terrible sleep, but then it wasn't as bad as I thought. And I, I get that more often than the other way around. So. Yeah. But um, just to finish the question, so there's the Aura Ring, there's Whoop, and there's also um, there's great apps that you can just use on your phone that use oh, cool. P- PPG technology. What's so, that? What's PPG? Um, it's like basically it's using the camera at the back of your phone that looks into the blood and looks at the beats. Oh, wow. 
through your phone. So you can, uh, the company HRV for training, really good. So we published a paper that was in the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance that validated it against ECG, which is the gold standard of HRV and it's very, very accurate. So. Okay, HRV for performance. For training. For training. Yeah. And so that would be the one that you do first thing in the morning before you yeah. know, wake up, before yeah. you do anything else. Yeah, and it's super cheap. It's like two ninety nine to download the app, you know. Oh. So their analysis, so the guy who created it, Marco Altini, he also has a coach's app, which is how I analyze all my athletes' data is I use the HRV for training coaches app, and that's based on pretty much what I did for my PhD. And... One of the reasons I use the Aura Ring is because I can't be guaranteed to have those five minutes in the morning or a minute with kids and whatnot. So, but I can be guaranteed that I'll get the HRV data during my night's sleep. And that syncs to HRV for training. So I don't use the PPG technology to record my HRV, but I'll use the Aura Ring to upload to HRV for training, which then I can analyze in the coach's app. Sure. So I can look at trends over time because what's most important is rather than day values is looking at rolling averages over time in the context of the training that you're doing. Oh. So so like, as you know, at the moment, I've just started, I'm like training for New Zealand Ironman seven weeks away. And I've started training and I'm really positively trending. My HRV is just gradually positively trending up, which is exactly what I want. But if that wasn't the case, I'd have to kind of reevaluate the training I was doing at the time. Hello, jumping in again, um, just a little moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Mitchell's Nutrition, and specifically their bone broth protein powder. Because if you want to up your protein intake, you want to nourish your gut and support your skin, muscles and joints in one easy and delicious protein powder, I reckon this is probably the one for you. Mitchell's Nutrition was born out of a search for ways to support the body's natural healing abilities and optimize daily performance. Their mission is to elevate the standard of mental and physical well-being of Kiwis so that they can keep doing the things they love for as long as possible. Their bone broth protein powder is dairy-free, gluten-free, legume and grain-free, low in sugar and boasts a 100% natural occurring full amino acid profile. It's seriously a very high quality protein powder and I absolutely love it. Using a traditional slow cooking technique to extract the goodness from 100% grass-fed New Zealand beef bones before stirring in some natural flavor and monk fruit. That is all it is, there's nothing else, and I love that Mitchell's Nutrition has a very, uh, a very high commitment to their transparency. What you see is what you get. Now, being the first of its kind here in New Zealand, being a bone broth protein powder, you might be wondering what the taste is like, and I've got to say, it's the best tasting protein powder I've ever tasted. I have the vanilla one every day, and it tastes like a vanilla milkshake, without a word of a lie. So if you're interested to learn more, check the show notes. Now back to the podcast. What about some things that influence HRV both positively and negatively that you have found? Mm, like yeah. personally, I know it's very individual, but like I'm yeah, always it, it is individual for sure. You know, we talked about HRV in the athletic context, but HRV was originally originally came about from a health aspect because what people discovered in health and wellness is that HRV is very much related to all cause mortality. So people who generally have lower HRV are more a uh, greater risk of cardiovascular disease. And we um, published a paper on this and actually did a collaboration with some um, cardiologists at Stanford University. And we, you know, we looked at HRV from a performance aspect and HRV from a, a health aspect. And you know, there's a lot, there was a big basically a meta-analysis and um, a systematic review that you know we showed that 
HRV is very related to cardiovascular disease. So you want to have a high HRV if you want to live well. And that's why it's such a great measure because it goes beyond sports performance. You want to, if you can have high and stable HRV, you're generally going to living a more healthy and better life. But some of the things that influence it, and they're quite global. And we're again, I published a paper in Census with 9 million data points from with, in collaboration with HRV for training. And we looked at things um, like um, exercise, alcohol, sickness, and, and whatnot. And the main things that influence it, exercise are, is one of the biggest drivers of improving your HRV. Any specific format? Generally exercise? low intensity exercise is better than high intensity, but... You want to have a mixture of both, but you want to be like 80-20-ish. You know, so 80% of your exercise at a low intensity with a little bit of high intensity is generally the best formula. If you do too much high intensity, too much sympathetic stress, it's going to drive your HRV down over time. But a little bit of high intensity and mostly low intensity is, is really good. And one of the other things is alcohol. Really bad. Is there a certain sort of threshold that's really bad or is it just any is bad? Well, I think any is bad, really. Right. But obviously, more is worse, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I know that with my HRV, coming back to the animal-based diet, I haven't drunk any alcohol in ages now because with the animal-based diet, I stopped drinking alcohol altogether. And I was noticed that my HRV was so much better. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it really popped up with a, I don't know if it was the animal-based diet or it was non-alcohol. And now I don't really drink any alcohol. I just have alcohol-free beers because it, I've noticed it affects my HIV mm. so much. But then other things like, you know, sauna, ice bath can help. Not having too much processed sugary foods, I think, is a big one as well. Mm. One thing I noticed was meditation. Meditation, every time, a day that I meditated, that night I would, I would definitely have a higher HIV. Mm. Yeah. Because you don't, you don't meditate, do you? Nah. But I, I'd be really interested to see. Yeah, if you did, how it would affect you. I wonder. I wonder how much training is kind of meditation. Though I wonder about that for you too, because I mean, you, every morning you're spending an hour or two training, right? Yeah. Either on the bike or you're running or you're swimming. Yeah, and, and, like, and it's all the same stuff, right? Because you're still in the moment. You're still focusing on your breath. You're mm. still. Yeah, and that's for me. Exercise has become my meditation just over the last like year or so because I haven't f- had as much time as I would like to actually yeah, meditate yeah. like i used to love meditating 20 yeah. minutes twice a day but 20 now, minutes twice a day 20 minutes twice a day yeah uh, that's a big commitment well see the thing is they say if you don't have time to meditate then you should be meditating because you really should be able to put the time well, in. if you're spending too much time cycling then yeah well that's the thing and then so so then i, was, I started to look at like what's the biggest bang for buck from a mental health perspective for me and for me i feel like i get more bang for my buck when I'm exercising, Yeah, you know? So exercise for me comes first on a daily basis. And then if I have the time, I which I, I generally do once the kids are in bed, I can meditate. Yeah. Or I try to meditate in the sauna, but that's hard because it's so hot. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, find, no, I find it quite difficult, actually. I'm the same. It is, it is really hard. It's like the first five to ten minutes you can kind of do, but then it gets really hard, right? Mm. So. Yeah, let's talk about that. So let's talk about what you do. What's your ideal day from like a health practices point of view? Like if you could just have your ideal day, what would you do? Firstly, you know, wake up from a good sleep. I like to have a bit of a chilled morning. <laughs> I mean, I can't say this is the way it works, but, you know, a bit of a chilled morning, not um, like, you know, I usually I usually get up and have a, like a coffee with, 
with a bit of ketone in there normally because that's kind of good for your cognition and also being shown to be good for your overall health, like NAD boosting. I would do some exercise. I think the amount of exercise that I probably do at the moment is beyond what's required for health. Um, but then I'm training for something, but I would do something that's um, generally a bit lower, like something lower intensity endurance-based exercise. And then I would couple that with something in the afternoon that would be more resistance-based and then finish off with. So usually I have a sauna and ice bath pretty much every day. Where that comes in the day is very random. Sometimes it's a good way to start the day. Sometimes I do it in the middle of the afternoon. Sometimes I'll do it before bed but um mm. yeah i generally don't do an ice bath before bed but that's kind of what i do and then also from an eating perspective i'll always try and have um you know, more whole foods generally lower carb for me and um some organ meats with your sauna what sort of temperature for how long pretty regular on that 20 minutes 80 degrees yeah the literature is very good and clear at that is that seems to be the sweet spot for minimal effective dose I mean, it's quite hard still, though. So I can't. It's, yeah, it's still, it it's still not easy. That can be pretty tricky. So, yeah. and what are the, what are the health benefits? There's some great research on this as well. Um, sauna benefits um, reduces the risk. If you do the sauna, like um, I think it's five times a week, it reduces your risk of cardiovascular disease by fifty percent, wow. um, which is a massive amount. Yeah, um, I mean, there's quite a lot in the week. But it, it's accumulative as well. So like one, I can't remember the exact numbers, but like one was like 10%, then two was like 20%, then three was like 30%, then like five was like 50%. It was, it was, it's a lot. I mean, there's a, there's a few reasons. There's one is um, it mimics cardiovascular exercise. So when, you, when you're in the sauna, you have an elevated heart rate and you're sweating, much like you would do when you're having cardiovascular exercise. So it mimics those effects and all the benefits that come with cardiovascular exercise. Also upregulates heat shock proteins. So heat shock proteins basically, so we're all, all made up of proteins and proteins are like are held together by the heat shock proteins help formulate them and hold their shape. So when proteins degrade, that's when we have problems with aging and you know things can go up astray in our own internal physiology so they really help with upregulating heat shock proteins which can help with just keeping everything intact and in shape and also i think it's just a good space to not be distracted you know just get out and just like mean i mean me and kate we have a it's one of the few times that we managed to connect with no interruptions you know we're both sitting in the sauna have a chat you know no distractions and i think that's really important so you get some good connection in there as well yeah, I, I think that's a huge aspect of it. It's the same for me. Like, you know, there are all those physiological benefits to sauna, but I think I'd be interested to know where that 50% decrease in mortality is coming from. Like, is it all just physiological benefit or like is there some mm. psychological benefit from like from having that time just to yourself, no distractions, just to sit and think because we never do that during the day. Yeah, yeah. We're always thinking about what needs to be done, what you didn't do, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, who knows, right? But I think, I mean, it's very clear that it's of massive benefit. Someone asked me the other day, you know, they said, oh, what's one of the best things you've ever purchased? And I would, I put the sauna and the ice bath in the best purchases, you know? Yeah. We do use it every day. Yeah. So, But I don't use it from a, that or the ice bath. I mean, I know many athletes who follow me and see me doing it, they think I use it from a recovery perspective, but that is not 
the reason I do. I don't use it to think I'm recovering from the training I've done. I use it for, I feel good after it. I think there's other benefits to it. It is an extra bit of exercise, a bit of, and it's a great way to relax and connect, you know, mm. so that's one of the main things I, I, I use it for. I'd be interested to know if you can do things like a hot bath and still get some of the benefits yeah. of a sauna. Yeah, you can. You can. At our university, we had a PhD student who was doing short-term acclimation study for people in the military, and they compared like using the sauna versus the bath and um, very similar responses. Right. Yeah. Okay, so then if someone wanted to give it a go, what do you reckon? Sort of like a 20-minute bath. I re- So I've been thinking about it. I reckon you need to do a 20-minute bath. And yeah. like pretty much as hot as you can kind of handle. Yeah. But I think you'll have to keep running hot every now and then so it keeps being quite warm. Yeah, I don't I can't remember the exact protocol that was used, but I think it was a little bit less than 20 minutes. Was that was required, yeah. Mm. I mean, don't forget that the conduction of water is very different to the conduction of air, right? Yeah. So you but from memory the subjects were really finding that you would feel a lot hotter after being in the bath. Like, you know, you'd get out and then it'd kind of catch you up and you were yeah, like, right. oh, wow, I feel really hot, you know? Whereas in the sauna, you get out and you kind of, it's, it was a weird thing. I remember one of my master's students in particular, he did it and he like nearly, he had to like, he was in trouble. Like he was like really hot. Oh, wow. So he was only really getting that response after the water. So, but there's also other things you can do. Like if you're in the bath, take your hands out a lot easier. <laughs> Yeah, you just sit in the bath and take your hands out because your hands are so cutaneous. They dissipate heat so well that you can really cool yourself down quite easily. So it depends on how you do things, right? Yeah, right. So, Does that work the other way as well? Because I sometimes when you're in the ice bath, like sometimes I won't put my hands in. because It's easier. Yeah, it's yeah, way it's easier. exactly the same way. Yeah, put your hands in. With the ice bath, like if you like went to like 37 degrees, low 37s in body core temp, but at 37 you don't feel that. You will feel cold. It's the point of where you're going from 38 down to 36 and a half. The, the change is when you start feeling really cold, not so much the actual. Of course, you oh, do yeah. feel cold, but you generally people feel the coldest when they're, with the change. All right. So, yeah. So with, with your ice bath, what's your protocol? Make it freaking cold. <laughs> what is yours? So mine's at one degree. What's yours? Yeah, I think, it, I, I think mine's at one degree. Yeah. It felt like one degree today. Mm. And yeah. so you you normally stand for about two to three minutes. Yeah, yeah. I generally do th- three apartments a day. Mm. I did two yeah. because I was worried that I was going to be spaced out for this podcast. <laughs> Which sometimes does happen if you go from a sauna. Well, it does for me anyway. If I have a hot sauna, then I go into my ice bath. If I put my head under and then if I'm in there for like two to three minutes, sometimes it can make me feel pretty yeah. spacey. Yeah. And like at one, at one time I did it, I had to actually be careful because I felt so lightheaded. I was almost thought I was going to like, fall over when I got out of the ice yeah, bath. Yeah, yeah. What do you think that is? Is that just like low blood pressure or? What could happen is that if you're in the heat, you'll get vasodilation, so your arterioles and veins will expand. But that's okay because the systemic circulation is not bad because your heart rate's more elevated when you're in the sauna and you're hotter. But then if you get into the ice bath and you still have the high vasodilation, your heart rate drops like that, as you know it does, really quick, then the blood pressure will mm. drop because you've got high vasodilation, low heart rate. Yeah. Low blood pressure. The heart rate drop is amazing. My heart rate's dropped from about 115 beats per minute to about 50 within, probably within like a minute actually. It's amazing how rapid that can be. Yeah, yeah. What's um, benefits of an ice bath? Again, like um, like we talked about with the the sauna, people think that the ice bath is a recovery modality, right? And 
originally. Because originally it was, right? Yeah, I, I suppose it become more and more popular recently from just general health, right? But originally they were popularized by athletes, which is using them from a recovery standpoint. And, you know, the belief that it could lower, lower inflammation, it could reduce muscle damage, but this isn't really the case. You know, there's been lots of research done that shows, you know, you can measure things like um, creatine kinase in the muscle, like dehydrogenase in the muscle, which is elevated with muscle damage and doesn't change anything. It doesn't really change in terms of muscle damage. It doesn't really change anything in terms of inflammation either. It's not to do with that. But one thing it does do, proven in the research, and it's very clear, is that it does reactivate your parasympathetic system. So if you do a very hard workout, you know, you're more sympathetic. It can help reactivate your parasympathetic system, which can be of benefit potentially. Mm. Um, so th there is that. So if you're doing really high intensity exercise, can be really good. So that's how you'd see a, a change in your HIV then from it. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. But having said that, there's also there was some good meta-analysis that that's been shown that you've got to also be a little bit careful with the type of adaptation that you're going through for your training. So. Cold water immersion has been shown to blunt some of like um, the mTOR pathway, for example, which is associated with muscle hypertrophy. So if you're wanting to go into the gym and get big, you probably don't want to finish off with a cold water immersion because you're going to blunt some of the adaptations. But on the other side, there is um, something called PGC1-alpha. That's another molecular signal for upregulating mitochondrial biogenesis, which is kind of the aerobic powerhouse of the muscle cell. Your ability to create energy aerobically, massively important, upregulated with cold water immersion. So if you're an endurance athlete looking to do more endurance-based sports, it's probably going to be a benefit. You might get some positive things from it, but if you're a strength athlete, then... Stay away. Stay away. As I understand it, you sort of thought to stay away for about four hours after. About four hours, yeah. When you exercise, you exert, there's so many like molecular signals that go out for adaptation. So some of those might be mTOR, like we talked about for muscle hypertrophy. There's um, calcium calmodulin kinase, which is another one that's more associated with low endurance training. AMPK, another cellular signal of energy, which is more regulated for high intensity interval training. All of those signals are generally around between four and eight hours, but generally it's around four and six somewhere. So that's why you know, frequency of training is important because if you can hit a signal for adaptation, do it again at the around the four hour mark, you're kind of continuously promoting the signal rather than just doing all your training in one once and then not doing any more. That's why the frequency of training is quite important for a training stimulus. Mm. So yeah, so I don't really use it for a recovery purpose, but I mean, one of the main reasons I use it is just from like a dopamine and a kind of a serotonin. I mean, it's shown that like the dopamine response from just getting in the ice bath and making you feel really good, which it definitely does, is it like does. 200 times what you would normally, you know, it's elevated by 200 times when you're getting cold water. Wow. And there's some good research in that, just people going in like the sea in the cold water, you know. So that that's one of one of the reasons. And obviously there's a HRV side, the parasympathetic reactivation. A little bit of evidence to suggest that it could help with metabolism as well. So the increase in um, brown fat, which is more mitochondrial rich. So cold water has been shown to increase the amount of brown fat in the adipose tissue. Brown fat is more mitochondrial rich, which is better for um, basically increasing metabolism. Could effectively help people lose a bit of weight as well. Mm. So. Yeah, I have heard it can decrease your body fat. And in fact, that's something that 
it's purely anecdotal, but uh, Maddie, my wife, she takes cold showers. We, we have cold showers every morning. And she has done for, I guess, like almost a year now maybe. But she reckons that having cold showers helped her to lose a couple of yeah. kgs of, of body fat. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's something you can do if you don't have an ice bath is to, I don't think there's any data on it, any science around cold showers, but I do, I do think there are many benefits you, that you can get from a cold shower, especially in New Zealand in winter. Um, Dopamine effect, massive. Big time. Yeah. I find it almost harder to get into a cold shower than yeah, it is right, the ice bath. Yeah, you said that the other day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's just because you you get into the ice bath and you're like, cool, I'm, this is like, this water's not moving, I can just go and sit down yeah. and I know exactly what I'm going to expect. And then with a cold shower, it's like, it's like coming at you and it's just like, assaulting you and it's just <laughs> assaulting it is it feels like it's assaulting you it's full on but then you feel so good when you, yeah, you, when you get over exactly. that I always I'll always finish with a bit of cold in the, in the shower just because you you feel so good and like with dopamine and serotonin a really good rule is that anything that's a bit of work to get a good dopamine response is a positive thing but I think in this day and age we've got to be so careful of there's so much dopamine responses for things that require no work, right? So like scrolling Instagram on your phone, like no work, dopamine response. So I think that's the way I look at it is that minimize anything that of dopamine that requires no work and maximize everything for dopamine that requires a lot of work. Exercise, ice, sauna, yeah, um, phone, chocolate, <laughs> all those other things, like just try to avoid them. I think that's a generally a good rule to live by. I love that rule. Let's talk about supplements. I want to know what supplements you take. For starters, you talked about ketones. I want to know more about that. So, I mean, I used to take no supplements, but now I take quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're on everything. Now I'm on it all. So I take, like I've always mentioned, I take a lot. They're not really supplements, but they're kind of, I guess they are, because they're they're organ meat supplements. Yep. Just to have something at the start of the day that's quite easy. So I'll generally take the organ meat supplements at the start of the day, then... Just before dinner, I'll take the raw. I'll have raw liver. Yeah, and um, so the supplements you take, so they're in capsule form. Yeah, and yeah, capsule form. Homegrown Primal is the company. yeah. Homegrown Primal. Yeah, I've yeah. I've used them before too. And that's a Kiwi company. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. They're based in Christchurch. Cool. So, so yeah. that's basically just dried, desiccated organ meats. Yeah, in pills. Exactly. Cool. Easy to take. Yeah. I mean, many people can't stomach organ meats; they hate it. But you know, it's quite a good. I mean, I've got some of my athletes on it. Yeah. Particularly, I have one athlete who's always low on his um, hematocrit. If you hematocrit as the red blood, blood, cell. blood cells. Yeah, yep. yeah. And if you look at things that are that are really important for red blood cells, is two of the main ones: are iron and copper. Iron, copper, zinc. What's in liver in more higher quantities than any other food? Iron, copper, zinc. So right. I get them to take it. More widely available. It's easy. No risk of contamination. So, you know. So I take that. And I have vitamin C generally just to cover my bases. Like the research is a bit sketchy whether it does anything for immunity, right? It uh, is. It is know? a bit sketchy, yeah. But um, again, I think, you know, again, do no harm. I'll take it. Yeah. I take a magnesium, magnesium glycinate, more for the neural pathways, and it can help with, I find it helps with sleep a lot as well. What, uh, what brand do you use? Where do you get that from? Pure. It's cool. not B Pure. No. But Pure, pure. is called. So it's a white bottle with white and blue, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're the main ones. And then, oh, a probiotic. A probiotic? Yeah. yeah. What probiotic do you take? Be pure. Oh, yeah. Not pure. Be pure. Cool. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I have the same one. Yeah. So, oh, and um, a zinc. Yep. I just think we do. I try to get zinc from other sources, but I just like, 
I think we generally don't have much thinking in our diet unless we really aim for it. Yeah. So I don't take that every day. It depends on what I've eaten. You yeah. know, if I've had a lot of shellfish, like I try and get oysters when I can. Yeah. And I won't take any. What about vitamin D? Oh, yeah. Vitamin D as well. Okay. <laughs> and did you take that all year round or? Yes, I do, but I vary the dose. So in the winter, I'll be taking, I quadruple the recommended dose. So the recommended dose is 1,000 units. I take 4,000 during the winter. Never had any problems. I'm still, you know, it's not, I mean, people talk about too much vitamins D being toxic, but I don't buy it. I think it's, um, you have to be so crazy, ridiculously high. So my vitamin D levels were high, but not mm. off the charts high. But I think that's good. But I, um, in the summer, I'll, it depends on how much I've been outside. If I've been like down at the beach all day with the kids, I'll kind of half my, my dose, you mm. know? So, so I, even when you've been out in the sun, so I, I never take vitamin D if I've had it. No, I, I just I just take a little bit. I'll take yeah. less though. Yeah. What about protein powders? <sighs> Not as much as our green. <laughs> <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be part of a um, I'm technical advisor and on the board and one of the owners of S Fuels, which is so we're we're endurance based um, sports drink or sports company but we specialize in right fuel right time approach so we don't believe in like all athletes should just be smashing sugar all the time no matter what type of training you're doing so we have fuels that are more fat based for your low intensity fuels that are more carbohydrate based for your higher intensity work so kind of taking the right fuel right time approach but also we have a recovery drink and that's um called revival which is one that one that i take and that's a protein yeah centric Protein centric. It's only it's whey protein and ketones. Okay. Yeah. So exogenous ketones, whether they do anything for performance is kind of still exogenous, meaning you get them from an outside yeah, source rather than creating them in your body. Yeah, exactly. So not created from in your body. So the, whether they do anything for um, performance, I would say the research says probably not at the moment. But I think we're still learning on how to use it properly and on the doses. But the research is a bit stronger from a recovery standpoint. Some good research to suggest that. It's really beneficial to, for the uptake of leucine, which is one of the main proteins for recovery and and the building blocks and building black up. So we have that in in the protein powders. Mm. Yeah. And so what about your, you talk about ketones, you would potentially have ketones in the morning. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's a different. Yeah, a different, a different thing. So I find that the ketones in the morning give me a real cognitive boost and also fill me a little bit as well. I feel a bit more full. Um, so I took those every morning. There's also some great research now that they're um, they boost NAD as well. So NAD is oh, I mean, I mean this is going <laughs> to this gets into a lot more a lot more detail. But um, basically, a, a thing that goes down with age, and it's like um, it's very important for energy creation, energy currency. Other than ATP, it's the most important currency in the body. Really, it goes down as we age. And, you know, it's one of the things There's lots of people who are in the longevity space believe that boosting NAD is the key to longevity. So, Right. When you talk about these ketones, you're having it in like a liquid form. I just put it in my coffee. Yeah, so it's, what it's, is it? It's a liquid form. Yeah. So the one that I use is called Delta G. It's a tactical, which is a... Delta P- G. Delta G. And this is Delta G. That'll see you up, mate. You can go to war on that one. Yeah, well, <laughs> Delta G tactical is... <laughs> yeah. Know, Cool. <laughs> yeah, and th- yeah, I just put a teaspoon in my coffee. Very, it's a very low dose. Yeah, but that'll get my. I've tested my ketones after it, and it'll put it bump them to close to one. 
right, well, that doesn't mean that much to me because I don't know what the scale is. Yeah. But so anything. I'm sure that's good. So basically, most people, normally people who just eat a regular diet, not in like a low carb or a ketogenic diet, would be 0.2. Okay. Do you reckon you're in ketosis if you're over 0.5? Okay. Ketones are, are thought to be, well, they are very good for cognition, very good for your metabolism, and even very good for your immunity, um, which is why like, the ketogenic diet for many people can be very beneficial and also reduces inflammation as well, potentially. So I really feel the kick. You don't take creatine, do you? No, because I'm too massive. Well, I've got a theory for you. Okay, get this. What about... I, I was taking creatine for a while, more for the, because I know the, the benefits for the brain. Well, benefits for the brain, then you've also got benefits for muscle. But then I was thinking, you know, it also makes you ho- like retain water, right? Mm. Draws water into your cells. But, yeah, I think that's over think overhyped. Yeah. I think it does, but not in everyone. No, I think, I think there's 30% of people that doesn't affect at all. I think it's the other way around. I think it only affects 30% of the people. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it's less. I think it's that oh, way. I okay. think. Maybe, maybe. Um, well, that's Mickey. Yeah, well, that's Mickey. Mickey or no. But, okay, let's say it did affect you and you did retain water. And I reckon it'd probably be about four kgs, I'm <sighs> estimating. So that's going to affect my running. Well, that's the thing. So then I'm thinking, will you train with that extra water? Oh, and yeah. then you come down off it, leading into a competition. And then, boom, you're four kgs lighter. Mate, I might have just given you the secret weapon to win the nationals. <laughs> I like your theory. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try it. Yeah, do Apart it. Apart from when I'm feeling rubbish in all my training and I get injured because I'm too heavy. Well, you ever think about that? No, I didn't think about that. <laughs> Give it a go and then uh, I'll get back you'll, to have you. to credit, you'll have to credit me with this new no, incredible I was, finding. I was taking it for a while, actually. I just I don't, you don't know need I to. No. Hey, well, I think that's probably a good place to leave it. Really appreciate your time, Dan. Thank you very much. Yeah. I look forward to chatting with you again another time about some other stuff. Crazy stuff. Yeah. 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 All right, man. Thanks. Cool. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, one last question before you go. What did you think of the podcast? Did you like it? Because if you did, then please rate it and review it and share it and tell people about it. Tell your mum, tell your dad, tell some random guy down the road. It really does make a big difference and it helps us to keep creating this podcast and sharing this awesome information with you for free. This show is brought to you by Raw Collective, the podcast company behind the creation of this show. You will find all updates on the Raw Collective Instagram as well as on the website rawcollective.co. Now get out of here. Go have a good day. Get out of here. Bye.